Monday morning Bible study, and that's at 11 o'clock. That's here in the sanctuary. Uh, we will have the Wednesday morning prayer meeting and Bible study as well. That's at 1030. That's done virtually. Let me know if you, you want to join that, and I can uh, I need your email address there. And by the way, with both of those, uh, the, the Monday morning and Wednesday morning uh, Bible studies, uh, we're finishing up uh, where the, the studies that we're currently on. If you would like to get involved in the new studies uh, that will be coming up in the next couple of weeks, uh, you can let me know or ask Diane or, or Becky about that, and they can get you on the right track with, uh, with some of the new stuff we have coming up. And then there will be youth on Wednesday night as well. That's at 6.30, and that's in the sanctuary as well. And then uh, something uh, coming up this week on Saturday, weather permitting, uh, we'll do an Easter egg hunt, and that is at 2 p.m. on Saturday afternoon. Uh, if there's bad weather or the threat of bad weather, make sure you check Facebook, and we'll... We're not going to uh, do it if, if the weather gets bad, so uh, just be aware of that. But that's at 2 o'clock, and that will be Saturday afternoon. Uh, you can meet down near the Fellowship Hall uh, for that. And then uh, we've been doing the, uh, the bunny here, Becky's Bunny, as I've been calling it this year. And uh, for the first time ever, we have a perfect score. And this doesn't get you uh, tuition to Yale or Harvard or anything, but... Uh, but we have a perfect score, and Becky was really happy about this. For the first time ever, we have a female winner. And so our uh, perfect winner this year is Diane. Uh, with <laughs> and Diane uh, with, has uh, 122 pieces of candy to share with her best friends. So be nice to Diane today. Uh, but uh, about 122 was the right answer there, and Diane nailed it on the head. So good, good. congratulations, Diane. And uh, those are the announcements, some of the things we have coming up this week. And, and once again, if you have any questions, uh, you can contact me, and I will be happy to talk with you about that. And with that, then, uh, let me uh, read from the words of Psalm 67 where the psalmist writes, Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy, for you judge the peoples with equity and guide the nations upon the earth. Let all the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we gather uh, in this way here in the sanctuary and, and on Facebook, we, we gather to give you praise and to worship you. And we think of that especially on this Palm Sunday as our king rides into Jerusalem on the donkey. You, O oh Lord, deserve all of our praise and all of our worship. We ask that you bless this time of worship, that you will be glorified, and that you will strengthen us in your word. We pray this. Jesus' name, amen. And then what I will do is uh, give you a few moments to go to the Father in your silent prayer uh, with your confession, uh, with those concerns that are on your mind this morning, those people who are on your prayer list. I'll give you uh, just a few moments right now to take those 
uh, to the Father before the pastoral prayer. So uh, let's go to God now in prayer. Eternal God, Lord of Lord and King of Kings, you are the creator and upholder and proprietor of all things, the true King of the universe. We cannot escape from your presence or control, nor do we desire to do so, for you are loving and you are merciful. And Lord, we come to you with repentance and confession of our sins. We know the vileness of our sin and the wrath that that sin deserves. And Lord, we bring them to you and ask for your forgiveness. Forgiveness that comes only through Christ Jesus, our Lord and our Savior. We thank you for the exceeding riches of your kindness through Jesus, that we can come to you and ask for this forgiveness, and you are quick to forgive. Teach us to walk in your wisdom. Teach us to be godly in our ways. Keep our, our feet on your paths of truth, that we may be pleasing in your sight in what we do and quick to confess when we veer off that path. Lord, we bring to you those who are sick, those who are waiting for test results, those who are under the care of doctors and recovering. We bring them to you, those uh, those names that we have in our mind right now and ask for your healing touch upon them. May you restore them to full health, giving doctors and nurses all the wisdom and knowledge that they need in healing them and that your supernatural healing touch may be upon them. Heavenly Father, we pray for our leaders at this time. We know Lord, that you are the true king. For all of those leaders in this nation and all of those leaders around the world, give them a sense of your power, that you are the true king, that they may come to you to seek wisdom, that they may lead righteously, that we may live in peace. We do pray for their health. We pray for their protection. We pray for their souls that you will save them, and that you will guide them as they lead. Lord, we pray for all of those who will be traveling this week, and we know that there will be many outs on the roads as they celebrate the resurrection of your Son, our Savior. 
And Lord, we do pray that the roadways will be safe, that travel uh, will flow smoothly, that people can get safely from one place to another, and that we will be healthy through this and use wisdom and good judgments as we travel and do our things at this time. Keep us safe. Keep us healthy. Lord, we pray for the lost, those who are stuck in their sin, those who don't know you as king, the sovereign Lord over all the universe, the God who will judge wickedness and will judge sin, but also the God who is quick to forgive, who has sent his Son, our Lord and Savior, to die for those sins. Lord, for those who do not know that truth, we pray that you open their eyes. Help us as your servants to speak your truth, to live your love, to display your kindness and mercy that they may see our actions and give you praise and come to you for forgiveness. And as this week goes along and we get closer to Easter, may those who don't know you uh, be awakened to your truth. When they hear phrases like Good Friday and Easter Sunday and Resurrection, that they'll ask what that really means and and what it is we celebrate, that you will open their eyes to that truth, that this year at Easter, many more will come into your kingdom and give you praise, give you worship, that they will be snatched from the fire and brought into your glory. Lord, that is our prayer, that you save those, especially those we know and love and will have contact with in this coming week. May, may our words be used by you. May your Holy Spirit empower everything we do that we may display your glory, that they may see you, that you may be glorified and worshipped. Lord, you are the true King. You are the maker of all things. You are the one who gives us life in this world, and you are the one who gives us eternal life in your kingdom. We praise you for your love and your mercy, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. And then what I will have you do this morning is turn to the book of Mark, and uh, we'll be reading Mark chapter 11. And verses 1 through 10, it's somewhat of a, a short passage, um, but I'm going to use a lot of other scripture, actually. I'm going to go, we'll go to Mark 15 for a little while in this, and I'll use uh, some from uh, some of the other Gospels as well. Uh, but it is Palm Sunday, and I always like to take a little break. Uh, we've been going through John, but I like to take this little break because as those of you who know me... Uh, no, I, uh, I always bemoan the fact a little bit that Easter kind of gets pushed off to the side, and it's the highlights, uh, to me, of, of the whole Christian year, our, our risen Lord and Savior. So I like to take a break and, 
and spend some time Palm Sunday and Resurrection Sunday and the Sunday after and just glorify uh, God. It's all about Christ. It's all about Christ, and, and that's what I love about Palm Sunday is it's all about Christ as the king uh, rides into Jerusalem. And so, uh, so we're going to look at some other scripture, but uh, let's start with this account, the triumphal entry, uh, as it's called, as Jesus uh, rides into Jerusalem. And so I will read from Mark chapter 11, beginning at verse 1. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage, at Bethany, at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? Say, The Lord has need of it, and will send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, What are you doing untying the colt? And they told them just what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. The word of the Lord. Let's pray. Gracious God, we thank you for this word. We thank you for this image we have of our king riding into Jerusalem, and the people shouting, blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna to the highest. Lord, we give you praise and honor, and may we honor you as we look at this passage and what it means. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I know I've mentioned this before, but uh, uh, growing up in, in the time that I did in somewhat of a small town, and, and we had the, the town swimming pool. And back then, the town swimming pool had the high dive. And as a, a child growing up, uh, you would see that high dive. Even when you were so young, all you could do was play in the little splash kiddie pool thing. But, and then there was a fence between you and the big pool. But you could look at, at the big pool. And see the big kids jumping off that high dive. You think, someday, I'm going to get off that high dive too. And then as you grow up a little bit, and, and then you can get on the other side of the fence, and you're in the pool, but you have to stay on the shallow end. And then if you pass the right swimming test or grow tall enough, you can kind of get to that middle part of the pool, at least the pool I grew up with. And then finally, you pass the test, and you can go in the deep end, which means you can jump off the high dive. And that first time you would climb up, you, you, you know, you'd wait in line to, to climb up the, the ladder. And as soon as you started climbing up, uh, you would think, this is it. But then the second thing you would think is, oh no, this is it. 
and you would climb up and you felt like you were climbing about three miles into the air. And, and you would look down at the water, and, and I think I saw airplanes flying between me and the water. It looked so far away, and, and you can see through the water to the you know, bottom of the pool. And it, well, that's like a mile down there, but you have to go now. Everybody's looking at you, and so you close your eyes and jump in off the high dive and go down in that water as deep as you've probably been in water ever in your life up to that point. And that's a little bit like what it was for Jesus when he announced himself as king. He was jumping in and he knew it. And he was going to be plunged into the depths. The people had been trying to make him king for a while now. He'd been healing people, and, and in fact, when he fed the 5,000 men and, and all the others who were there, he had to leave because he knew they were going to force him to try to make him king. And he had to leave. It wasn't time yet. He wasn't ready to announce his, his kingship because he knew what that would mean. And then as it happened in, in the book of John, uh, there was Lazarus who had died. And Jesus brought him back to life. And he did so very publicly. He had brought people back to life before, but he would tell them, now don't say anything about this. Keep this a secret. It wasn't time yet, but with Lazarus, he didn't care anymore. He stood at the tomb and said, Lazarus, come out. And Lazarus came out and people saw, and he didn't even try to keep that a secret anymore. The, the time was there. And in fact, the religious leaders at that point, they said, well, we've got to kill Jesus now. Too many people are believing in him. And in fact, they said, we've got to kill Lazarus too because too many people knew he was dead and here he is alive. And if they start believing in Jesus because of him, we've got to kill both of these guys. And Jesus at that point said, it's, it's time. It's time to declare myself as the king that I am. And we're at Palm Sunday. And he comes uh, into Jerusalem, or as they get near to Jerusalem, and, and he has these couple of disciples go and, and get this donkey. What we need to see here is Jesus is deliberately invoking this uh, demonstration. He wants people to see. Now is the time that they can call him king. And this is a part of prophecy of, of how the king will come into Jerusalem, part of Zechariah uh, chapter 9. And, and Jesus rides in on this, this donkey and, and the crowd, the, the people of Jerusalem. And, and it's the Passover now, by the way. So there are a lot of people in Jerusalem. The timing was just perfect for Jesus. And, and they're shouting out, Hosanna, uh, in verses uh 9 and 10, you see that word, Hosanna, which is an Aramaic word. It means, oh, Lord, save. Uh, and, and it had become a praise, if you will. Uh, it's almost like saying, hail to the king. In fact, in, in Luke chapter 19, that they, that's exactly what they say. The king, here's the, the king. And, and as they're uh, saying, Hosanna, and, and uh, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, it, it comes from Psalm 118, actually, verses 25 and 26. And uh, as uh, one theologian writes, it is clear 
from the words of the psalm shouted by the crowd that Jesus is being proclaimed as the messianic king. And the crowd knows this. They call him king. And, and here in Mark, we see that they're using the word kingdom. Blessed is the coming kingdom. Here, here he is. In answer to prophecy, and, and as I mentioned, that prophecy comes from Zechariah 9, verse 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Behold your king. Here he is. What the people didn't realize, though, is that this king was far different than what they were expecting. He wasn't coming to be the king that they were really thinking about, or even that they really wanted at the time. They we're looking for a king who is going to defeat Rome. Because any king that Israel did have was pretty much a puppet to the Roman authorities. And they thought, well, here's this one. Here's this Messiah. He's going to deliver us from Rome. But that, that's not what Jesus was there to do. And to show that, I want us to, to follow this idea of Jesus as king a little bit further into Mark. And so if you do flip to Mark chapter 15, and I'm going to do some very real quick paraphrasing here uh, through Mark chapter 15, but, but what has happened is after Jesus rode into town, shortly after that he was betrayed by one of his own, Judas. Judas sells out Jesus for money. The religious leaders have been trying to get at Jesus for a while now, and Judas finally says, okay, I'll, I'll sell out. I'll, I'll betray Jesus, and they tried to get some, some people with false accusations against Jesus, and, and so uh, they, they had this mock trial at, at night, and, and there was so much illegal about it, but they, they tried Jesus anyway, and then uh, when we get to Mark 15, uh, as soon as it was morning, and this is the morning now, um, where after Jesus had been arrested uh, the, the night before, uh, the chief priests, it says in Mark 15, and there were the elders and the scribes and, and the whole council. Basically, all of the religious leaders, they bound Jesus and delivered him over to Pilate. And here's the reason Pontius uh, Pilate has to, uh, if there's anything political, if there's any political implication at all, Pilate is going to get involved because he is the Roman official. He is the one in charge of Israel, if you will. Uh, that, that the Romans had, had put there to, to make sure they were all good in that area. And, and Pilate was the one who could invoke the death penalty. And that, that's also why they needed Pilate. Uh, in fact, one uh, historian, theologian writes, the Romans kept close control of the death penalty in conquered territories to prevent it being used to execute Roman sympathizers. And, and that's kind of interesting. That's one of the reasons that they, they went to Pilate, because, first of all, he can declare the death sentence on, on Jesus. But Rome was very protective of that death sentence, if you will, because they didn't. if someone was a Roman sympathizer, they didn't want that person killed. They liked Roman sympathizers. And so he would go to the Roman official, and, and he could 
you know, if it was someone that didn't care about Rome, well, what did they care? Go ahead and, and we'll, we'll kill him. And, and in fact, uh, when Pilate was questioning Jesus, that was part of the deal. As they said, well, he's, he made himself out to be king. And, and you can see where Pilate asks uh, Jesus that in, in chapter 15. Are, are you really the king? Well, as the conversation goes on and, and through Mark and, and some of the other uh, Gospels as well, uh, Jesus is very clear. No, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not a political figure. I'm, I'm not trying to take over politically at all. And, and Pilate really didn't care about Jesus. Uh, in, in John uh, chapter 18, um, he, he even mentions, he said, I, I got nothing against the guy. You take him and you do what you want. And, and that's almost code. Pilate was saying, you know what? If you drag Jesus into the middle of a field and stone him to death, first of all, I might not hear of it. And second of all, if I do hear of it, I won't care. Because he doesn't care about Rome. So what do I care about him? He's, I got nothing against him. You, If you have problems with him, you go and really, you could stone him and, and it wouldn't matter to me. In fact, the Jewish people would do this. Uh, they would stone people. Rome didn't care. As long as they weren't a Roman sympathizer, and they would do it to uh, Stephen uh, later on. So Pilate really didn't have an interest in this, but they come to him anyhow, and, and Pilate asks, are, are you the king? And uh, Jesus basically said, well, my kingdom is not of this world, and, and we see that in John, actually, in, in uh, John chapter 18. My, my kingdom's not of this world. So Pilate really has no reason to kill Jesus, but, but Pilate, he mocks the Jewish people with this whole kingship idea. And, and you notice that in, in verses uh, 9, and then also again in, in verse uh, 11. When they're going back and forth, and then this idea of, of Barabbas, there was a, a tradition they had where uh, they, the Jew, or the Roman officials would release a, a Jewish prisoner back to them. And, and so he said, well, do you want this Barabbas, who, by the way, is a murderer? Do you want him, or, or do you want this king? Do you want, want Barabbas, or do you want the king of the Jews? And, of course, they said, well, give us Barabbas. And and then Pilate again, he's mocking them, really, saying, well, then what do I do with this one you call king? What do I do with your king? Uh, you, you can almost see the arrogance of, of Pilate in all of this, kind of mocking the Jewish people. And you can almost, and I want to stress almost, sympathize with Pilate a little bit. Because he's dealing with some very irrational people at this point. And in his head, he had to be thinking that too. He's like, really, you want this murderer? Here's a guy that rode into town on a donkey, and you'd rather have this murderer out on the streets than this guy? And, and we know too that, that one of the reasons the religious leaders have him there is because he brought Lazarus back to life. And we're thinking... They would rather have a murderer on the street rather than this guy who restored life to someone. It, 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 the opposites are just striking. And you can almost sympathize with Pilate thinking they're crazy. And Pilate would have been right on that point. However, I say you can almost sympathize with Pilate because uh, we don't sympathize too long because Pilate is, is very, very cruel. 
see that with what happens uh, coming up. Pilate finally gives in. He says, okay, take Barabbas and, and I'll, I'll crucify Jesus. We'll put him to death. And he had him scourged, we see, in verse 15, or flogged, your translation might say. And let me just read uh, what that entails. And, and once again, I'm just going to quote a, a historian theologian here who writes this. A Roman scourging was an excruciating punishment. The victim was stripped of his clothes and bound to a post with his hands fastened above him. Sometimes he was thrown to the ground. Guards standing on either side of the victim would incessantly beat him with a whip made out of leather with pieces of lead and bone inserted into its ends. While the Jews only allowed 39 lashes, the Romans had no such limit. Many people who received such a beating died as a result. Many never made it to the cross. They would die because the Roman guards would just beat on that victim until basically their arms got tired. leather straps on a naked body, lead and bone at the end of those straps whipping against that body. And they would just go until they didn't want to go anymore, until they were tired. That's our king. Behold, that's our king. That they're whipping. Pilate is cruel. So he has Jesus scourged. And then they mock him. If you see in, in Mark 15, as if that's not enough, the, the soldiers, they, they lead Jesus away. They, they, uh, they call together a whole battalion, if you see that, this, this army. And, and that's almost part of the mocking here. Here's your army, you king. And then look, look what they do. In, in Mark 15, verse 17, they clothe him in a purple cloak, the, the, the color of royalty. And they twist together a crown, but it's a crown of, of thorns. And they jam that down on his head, mixing the blood and the sweat as they tear the flesh with these, these thorns that they made into a crown, mocking him. And they begin to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews. Which, of course, uh, for Romans, they would often cry out, you know, Hail Caesar. And here they're mocking Jesus. Hail, King of the Jews. Striking his head, spitting on him, and kneeling down in homage to him. Mocking him every step of the way. And it says when they had mocked him, they led him out to crucify him. And later on in verse 26, the inscription of the charge against him, the king of the Jews, mocking not only Jesus himself, but once again mocking the Jewish people. In fact, they asked Pilate, they said, can you put something else on there? No, nope, what I wrote is what I wrote. King of the Jews. And those passing by, they wagged their heads, it says in Mark, it, 
and uh, they, they start uh, using Jesus' words against them. Hey, you said you'd destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. Well, save yourself. You know, it's one of the things that the people always wanted out of Jesus. Show us something else. Show us another sign. And Jesus knew their heart. He knew they didn't really believe in him, but they kept saying, show us something else. Show us another sign. Here they are. Show us again something you can do. Save yourself. Come down from that cross. The chief priests, the scribes, they mocked him. And they said to one another, he saved others. Can't save himself. Mr. Big Man who brought Lazarus out of the tomb can't save himself. And they join in on the mocking, let, let the king of Israel come down from the cross and see that we may believe. If he comes down from the cross, then maybe we'll believe. This guy really is a king. This guy who so boldly marched into Jerusalem, or actually rode into Jerusalem on that donkey. He really is king. Come down from that cross that we may see. In fact, uh, Pilate in, in John, John chapter 19, when John or when uh, Pilate brings Jesus out, uh, Pilate says, Behold, your king. Here's this guy they have mocked and scourged and beat up. He's probably just barely able to stand and, and once again mocking him and mocking the Jews. Behold, your king. And what he didn't realize is that he was really repeating from Zechariah chapter 9, where the prophet wrote, Behold, your king. Behold, your king. That's my king. That's my king. And your king that they have been mocking and beating. You see, he's a different king than what they were all expecting. As he said, his kingdom is not of this world. He is a, a spiritual king fighting a greater battle against a more dangerous enemy. One of the things a king was expected to do is lead into battle against your enemy. Our greatest enemy is our sin that leads to death. Or if you want to put it the other way, our greatest enemy is our death because of our sin. And when I use that word death, here's what I mean. The wrath of God and the fury of that wrath against sin. Because we have sin. And that is our greatest enemy. Because that deserves the wrath and fury of God. In fact, one of the things the guards did that they didn't even know they were doing in Mark 15, verse 17, that crown of thorns that they put on Jesus' head, not only to inflict great pain on Jesus, but also to mock him with this crown. They were unwittingly symbolizing God's curse on humanity being placed on Jesus. Back in Genesis chapter 3, when God uh, was pronouncing the judgments the curse because of the sin of Adam and Eve eating the forbidden fruits. Part of that curse was this. He told Adam, this ground is going to produce for you thorns and thistles, and it's going to be tough 
to scrape out a living. Thorns and thistles. And with these thorns being placed and pushed down on Jesus' head, they were, uh, as I said, unwittingly placing the curse of God in a symbolic way on Jesus' head. And our king took that curse of our sin to the cross. I quote Isaiah 53 at least a couple times a year, and I want to quote it again today because it's so fitting. The prophet Isaiah writes, He was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his stripes we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Although he had done violence, although there was no deceit in his mouth, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. And then speaking of Jesus, Isaiah writes in verse 12, he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Behold, fought the fight that we couldn't win. He bore the punishment we could have never taken. The wrath and fury of God on our sin, he took that. And next week, we're going to celebrate a resurrected king. We're going to celebrate a victorious king. A king who brings his people into the kingdom. That celebration is coming. As Paul would write in, in Colossians chapter 1, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. This week it ends with a high note. Resurrection. Victory for our king. And it starts on a high note. Jesus announcing his kingdom coming into Jerusalem, but in the middle, he will be plunged into the depths of our sin and bear the penalty for our sin. Behold your king in whom there is forgiveness, in whom there is peace with God. And as we go through this week and we're reminded of things that happened 2,000 years ago, we hear words like Good Friday. We hear words like crucifixion that we are reminded, behold, that is our king. That is our victorious king. Let's pray. King of kings, Lord of lords, our Savior and our God, we pray the very words that your servant, King David, prayed in Psalm 145. I will extol you, my God and King, and bless your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised, and his greatness is unsearchable. 
all your saints shall bless you. They shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and tell of your power. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and your dominion endures throughout all generations. Lord, we thank you for these words reminding us of our King, who fought a battle far greater than we can realize. Our King through whom we have redemption, forgiveness of sins. Our King, who will lead us into his eternal kingdom. Our Lord and our King. We give him all worship and praise. We thank you, Father, for sending your Son to bear our penalty. We thank you, Jesus, for willingly going to that cross, bearing that shame, that torture, and that punishment that the wrath and fury of our sin got taken upon you. And we thank you, Holy Spirit, for reminding us of these truths, the truth of Christ and the forgiveness we have in him. Our great God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we give you praise and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. And our benediction then comes from the book of 1 Timothy. To the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost.